I really believe that literature should take us away from where we are right now so that we can see where we are right now with new eyes. If you write about the world as it is, there's too much of a danger of it just feeding into our assumption that everything that we live with is right and normal. M.T. Anderson has devoted his career to writing stories that do exactly this, presenting us with a way to reevaluate the world around us. From the dystopian fiction of his book, Feed, to the sci-fi satire of Landscape with Invisible Hand, to the National Book Award-winning Octavian Nothing, M.T.'s books cross many genres, but a common thread throughout his wide-ranging work is the skillful use of imagination and fantasy to challenge young readers to rethink what they consider normal in society and in their lives. What's more, MT believes that once maligned genres like sci-fi give writers ways to make emotional connections with readers that traditional realism doesn't offer. This is not simply a kind of like a gadgets and aliens genre. This is a way for me to understand the human condition at its heart. And so you're getting this beautiful crop of writers and all these things that were previously considered as kind of like genre ghettos. In today's episode, MT joins us to talk about the sneaky relevance of sci-fi and fantasy, how he enjoys being just a dot in the continuum of history, and how his dog taught him to write his latest middle grade novel. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. I feel like where you're sitting and whatever's behind you is like exactly how I might have imagined where you'd be sitting and what's behind you. Yeah, so I uh, live most of the time in like a little haunted 18th century house up in the hills of Vermont. So I'm sitting here in my study. Yeah, I agree. It uh, it looks a little bit like a Jane Austen novel in here. How do you know it's haunted? Um, well, I was told before I moved in, people warned me. They were like, it's super cheap, but it's haunted. Oh my God. I was like, well, I don't really believe in ghosts, so I'm <laughs> fine with that. People said, well, there's a child that wails outside of one of the windows. And I was like, well, if the child's wailing outside of the window, it's not the homeowner's problem. It's not inside the building. <laughs> it's not my problem. It's not like a plumbing problem. I moved in and indeed, like three days after I moved in, I was sitting here writing a speech. Most of the house was absolutely empty because it had to be fixed up. It was in terrible, terrible shape. And suddenly I did in fact hear a wailing outside the window. Well, first of all, I've never had the experience of actually feeling yourself like go pale before. I mean, I'm already pretty pale, but still, yeah. like uh, <laughs> I, I could tell that like just the blood had drained from my face. And then I immediately started to Google the cries of local mammals. And I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I did find a couple of letters under the floorboards upstairs from the kids who lived here to the ghost. No way. Yeah, yeah. And they were incredibly sweet because it's like this little girl saying like, dear ghost, I love you. I think you are cute. I hope your mom gives you a corgi so you can ride on it. Do you like to ice skate? 
<laughs> that was the text of it. And I loved it because it was like- they, really, they must have pictured her very small to have a corgi that she's riding on. Okay. <laughs> totally. Yeah. In fact, I kind of wonder if that isn't from, I don't know, isn't from something or something. But what I loved about it was that there's this weird compassion that this child is showing for the ghost, like feeling yes. that the ghost somehow is lonely and wanting to take care of it. But at the same time, it's a way of a child who might be frightened of being upstairs alone, making a ghost that is approachable and human. So I think it's kind of a beautiful move by this kid that she comforts herself and the ghost at the same time. Yeah, I love that that image, that idea. But you're in Vermont and you grew up in Massachusetts. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, what was What was growing up in Massachusetts like? I loved growing up in Massachusetts. I mean, I loved the fact that in my town there were houses that went back to the 18th century. I loved just the sense of like history there and also of the mystery of the forests. So the town I grew up in had been an agricultural community serving Boston up until the 1950s with the introduction of refrigerated cars and things that could bring food from far away. Up until then, like the town had been basically farms. So the cool thing was by the time I grew up there, it was filled with forests because those farms had become obsolete. And so it was just a town filled with these kind of this woodland. And then unfortunately I had to kind of watch as I was in my twenties and of course, as the suburbs spread and then it basically became a, a suburban community. That really affected my reading, too, because it meant that there were these kind of fantasy landscapes all around me. Like, I, I was a big lover of fantasy, and here I was in the middle of all these forests with paths going through and old crumbling walls and that kind of thing. So it really uh, sparked my imagination. I had a great childhood for that kind of reason. Did you have siblings going not for the first 10 years. My sister was born only when I was 10 years old. So I was an only child. I pretended a lot by myself in the woods, which I think was probably also a really important experience. In terms of becoming a writer, you know, you start to make up stories on your own. Was it like a pretty rural environment then? Like what was your school life like? And did you live by a library, that kind of stuff? It was much more suburban feeling than, I mean, it might not have looked like a suburb, but it, it still felt suburban compared to where I live now, where, for example, like the town I live in now in Vermont, there are a hundred miles of road and only two of those roads are actually paved. So that's much more rural than where I grew up, where, you know, yeah, it was a lot of old crumbling farms and things. But at the same time, uh, you know, I took the bus to school like everyone else. And I had a very standard small town experience, I think, growing up. There was a library that I totally loved. Um, all of the descriptions in Ray Bradbury's books of like libraries as this place where, you know, down one aisle is Egypt and down another aisle is, is Thailand <laughs> and that kind of thing. Like where he's talking uh, about the power of libraries to um, allow you to travel to places that are far away or places that haven't ever even existed. That kind of thing was so true for me when I was a kid. You know, I loved that library. And it was um, it was one of those old Carnegie libraries, so it looked kind of like a castle and had a turret. So that made the uh, adventure all the more exciting. 
more magical. Yeah, when I read the John Belair's books, for example, they're often set in a kind of like a small towny feeling place with that sort of library where it's clearly supposed to be a kind of Carnegie Library brick, that kind of thing. And uh, and those always spoke to me a lot for that reason. I loved that sense of the library is a place of secrets, a place of mysteries, a place of an adventure. And I think that that's actually a really important way to get kids involved in in reading, but you know, more than that, just to get them involved in the wider world is to say, look, knowledge is an adventure, and that's what's so great about learning things. What were some of the books that you remember that sort of shaped your early childhood? Dr. Seuss's books were totally uh, like fundamental to my thinking. Even the ones that now I would actually probably not uh, necessarily pass on to a kid. I did lectures about 10 or 15 years ago about those books that I loved so much and about how there's a whole set of Dr. Seuss's books from his middle period that are all about kind of like an imaginative boy who transforms the landscape, sometimes for better, sometimes, especially from a modern point of view, for the worse. So, you know, like he creates a circus in an abandoned lot kind of through his imagination. He, uh, you know, makes a giant omelet out of all the most precious and unusual birds in the world. That idea of imagination was really, really important to me. And the idea of like a bored boy in the middle of nowhere whose imagination transforms things. And now I've come to see that as being also, I mean, you know, as I think Dr. Seuss himself, he turned away from that from that narrative later in his work. I mean, the Lorax, it's the same, all of the same pieces of narrative, but turned to the opposite direction as those middle period books. But nonetheless, like that idea of the transforming power of imagination, that was really important to me. The sky was almost black, but the snow shone a bright blue in the moonlight. Inside, the house was warm and cozy, Heaps of peat were quietly smoldering in the central heating stove down in the cellar. The moon looked in sometimes at the drawing room window, lighting on the white winter covers of the chairs and on the cut glass chandelier in its white gauze bag. And in the drawing room also, grouped around the biggest porcelain stove of the house, the Moomin family lay sleeping their long winter sleep. They always slept from November to April because such was the custom of their forefathers and Moomins stick to tradition. Everybody had a good meal of pine needles in their stomachs just as their ancestors used to have and beside their beds they had hopefully laid out everything likely to be needed in early spring. The silence was deep and expectant. Every now and then someone sighed and curled deeper down under the quilt. The streak of moonlight wandered from rocking chair to drawing room table, crawled over the brass knobs of the bed, and shone straight in Moomin Troll's face. And now something happened that had never happened before, not since the first Moomin took to his hibernating den. Moomin Troll awoke and found that he couldn't go back to sleep again. Moominland Midwinter is the sixth installment in Swedish-Finnish author Tove Janssen's Moomins series. The series chronicles the lives of Moomins, tiny creatures who live deep in the forests of Finland. Kind of reminded me of when Kate DiCamillo was on the show and she talked about one of her favorite books, The Borrowers. The first Moominland story was released in 1945 and Janssen would stick with the creatures until 1993, writing nine chapter books, five picture books, and a comic strip. 
There's even a Moomin World theme park in Finland. This novel marked a turning point in the tone of the series, as Janssen began to use the fantastical setting to delve deeper into emotional themes. Despite being the sixth installment, Moominland Midwinter was MT's first venture into the imaginative world of these little creatures. There I was. It was a snowy evening. I was sitting by the fire in the house. It was warm and cozy, and I'm reading this book about a boy confronting winter. And I just remember, I mean, even though he's a boy that has a giant snout and a tail, um, I remember just feeling that... That wonderful sense of like connection with the book. And then reading the books by this woman became a big thing for me. And in fact, it's still like when I was writing the um, novel of mine that's about to come out, Elf Dog and Owlhead, I still was really thinking of her as a model because I love her work so much, even as an adult. I could imagine like there's this whole other world you didn't know, some whole other reality that was just like right underneath the surface or happening when you weren't there. Right. And also, I think these are books in particular that are really good at depicting the emotional life of of children, where oftentimes they don't exactly have the words to explain what the emotions are. And there are these kind of moments of, of rage or of euphoria or whatever, where as a kid, you don't really know what's going on. You just along for the emotional ride. You know what I mean? <laughs> and these books are beautiful yeah. at... Um, they're good at depicting emotions that don't really have a name. And that's what I think as a kid, I was like, oh, wow, like there's not just happy and sad. There's also this thing like melancholy. I don't even know exactly what it is, but I kind of know what it means. Like now that I've read this, in a way you need to find the word for an emotion to know even that you've experienced it sometimes. Like if we don't have the language to describe the things we're feeling, sometimes we can't even recognize that that is what we've felt. They also, I'll say that they begin, like when she's first writing them, they're very um, adventure oriented. You know, it's kind of going on quests and that kind of thing. And then the cool thing, odd, the odd, but the odd thing is also, as they go along, they become less and less exterior and more internal. The final one, Moominland in November, the Moomins aren't even in their own valley. It's about a bunch of people coming to their house to meet them and finding them gone and like sitting around waiting for them to return. And so the whole book is about like absence. <laughs> and then finally, the very final scene. Like is waiting for Godot. But for <laughs> exactly. It is. It's like, <laughs> and the final scene is you just see a boat on the horizon and you know that they're coming back and that's the end. Oh my God. So you don't get closure. Okay. No. <laughs> MT's experience of huddling up in a cozy country home in the middle of winter, reading about these fascinating little creatures, sparked a deep interest in otherworldly and imaginative ideas. The works of Ray Bradbury would also become some of his personal favorites. He's an incredible writer, too. I mean, just like his sentences are really beautiful. Growing up, he found himself surrounded by magical settings, minus the actual magic. Allowing his imagination to wander, he was drawn even further into sci-fi and fantasy stories. During my formative years, basically almost before I can remember, like when I was uh, four and five, my dad uh, was posted to a, um, a military base in Italy. So we lived in Italy for a year and a bit. And there, like we rented an apartment that was in a repurposed medieval monastery. And, you know, there was a crumbling old castle in town. 
And so I was living in this landscape. You know, Europe is where so much fantasy, especially the fantasy written then, it's based on that history. So I came back and, um, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is that when I got to kindergarten in the U.S., they actually were worried at one point because when they gave me blocks to play with, I would just make these kind of tumbled piles. And when they asked me about it, like, why don't you make a building? I was like, well, I'm building a ruin. I think that like in some ways, what I still do as a writer is build ruins, you know? Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You're building ruins. Well, I mean, I think I, I do a lot of stuff that is historically based or whatever else. So it's like, like my Octavian books, which are kind of gothic novels set during the American Revolution, they are in the guise of something that survives secretly from that time until this. It's like, oh, here is this book by this person who then disappeared into the wilderness. You know, I, I really believe that literature should take us away from where we are right now so that we can see where we are right now with new eyes. If you write about the world as it is, there's too much of a danger of it just feeding into our assumption that everything that we live with is right and normal. Whereas if you start to say, well, wait, let's project this into the future, or let's see where this comes from in the past, suddenly it opens up a whole new vista about what the present is doing. You know, in the same way that like so many um, figures, like wise man, wise woman figures from the past would speak in parables. Because like you tell that little story and then suddenly someone realizes, oh, that can also mean this about my life. What strikes me about you as like a person, I think, is that you're in a place that has not the best internet with dirt roads and very like analog lifestyle in a lot of ways, you know? And it seems like you really, you, you, way you're talking about libraries and the rows of books. I mean, that's, that's like what I think it seems like brings you all this joy and grounding. But then the other side of you, it's like you're very futuristic. You're seeing all, all these things. Like many of your books sort of are like telling the, the future and you love fantasy and sci-fi. And so it's kind of an interesting dichotomy, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I, in some ways it's because I'm concerned about the future that I embrace the past, I think, to some extent. But also I think that part of the, one of the great joys of being alive is recognizing that we're just this tiny little spot in a human continuum that goes so far into the past and so far into the future, we can't even see the ends of it. And so I love the idea of participating in the whole history of the human race. And I feel like it's such an exciting thing for us. Like it's one of the great pleasures of being human is to say like, oh, look what happened to us in the past. Look what things we did. Look what we accomplished. Or look what we didn't accomplish. Look at the ways we we were blind. And then to also say, what are people in the future going to look back at and say, oh, I can't believe they did that, you know? I think some people view that as scary instead of, you know, like when you sort of realize when you have that moment that everybody does, where you're like, oh, wait, I'm just this dot and this very long continuum. And this is just one spot. You know, a lot of people, I think, view that as a, I don't know, that have a different perspective of it. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it is scary. I mean, you know, um, we want to matter more than we do, I guess, in a way. On the other hand, you know, it's part of trying to participate fully in life, like trying to, you know, we're only here once. And so we have to be aware of the world around us and aware of all the things that are sad about that as well as the things that are joyful. And I think that's a really tremendous thing. I mean, you know, when you suffer a loss, 
someone you love or whatever else, one of the ways to get through it, and I know that this is small consolation in many cases, but is to say like, but I had the beauty of, of loving in the first place. And, and now I even, I can tell how beautiful that is by how sad I am now. And that's one of the ways, you, you know, people get through that kind of thing. And I don't think that that's just being somehow Pollyannish. I think it actually is a fundamental, like spiritual thing where we, we can recognize that suffering and sadness are all part of this tapestry of being alive. We have to embrace them all. Throughout the years, science fiction and fantasy have had an uphill battle in being taken as seriously as other genres, or in some cases, seriously at all. They were often perceived as campy and lacking depth, to the point where some of the most famous writers to embrace the genre, such as Kurt Vonnegut, were averse to being labeled as sci-fi writers. While stories like 2001 A Space Odyssey helped open the door for people to understand the true depth science fiction can hold, the stigma was, and to some extent still is, present. I think that the deal is that up until around 2005 or 2010, there really was a sense that of like uh, literary fiction as being exalted and as a genre unlike any other genre. So it's kind of like, it's not separate but equal, it was actually better. So for example, in MFA programs, in, in um, writing programs, when you wrote uh, kind of woodenly and badly, people would be like, oh my God, this is like a YA novel. Or, um, you know, like this reads like sci-fi, you know, and that was definitely a negative thing back then. And yet those were the things that I totally was into. Like at that time, I, I felt like, there's not a novel in the world that's not improved by an alien abduction, I would have said, around the year 2000. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure about that now. But, um, <laughs> but the point is, like, I think one of the great things is that people have realized that um, literary realism, which was this bulwark of the literary world, it is its own genre with its own conventions. And, and that means that also that the quality of... Um, Science fiction, for example, has gone way up because people who might not have wanted to write in that genre previously now are like, well, wait, I can really explore the depth of human emotion in this. This is not simply a kind of like a gadgets and aliens genre. This is a way for me to understand the human condition at its heart. And so you're getting this the, like a beautiful crop of writers and all these things that were previously considered as kind of like genre ghettos. Okay, so in 2019, you received the Margaret A. Edwards Award for your, quote, significant and lasting contribution to writing for teens. And in your acceptance speech, you said this, when future scholars of literature look back on the 21st century, they're going to see the first few decades of this millennium as a golden age of young adult literature. When books for teens went from being the unloved byproduct of picture book publishing to becoming an art form of central importance to the culture as a whole. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'm wondering if you feel the same about science fiction and fantasy. I mean, there always have been wonderful writers in sci-fi, but what or or fantasy or mystery or whatever. But what would happen is that like if someone got particularly literary, like say Thomas Pynchon as a sci-fi writer, 
he would kind of like suffer an apotheosis. And suddenly people would be like, you're allowed to come upstairs now. Come up to literary fiction. And so he's no longer considered a sci-fi writer. He's a literary writer. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Or, uh, you know, like Jean Le, Le Carré. They're like, you're not a spy writer anymore. You know what I mean? Like, And it's like you, yeah. you kind of receive the benediction from the Pope or something. <laughs> and now instead, I think the really helpful thing is that everyone is just like, no, there can be great writers who write about things that are not our normal, like in our normal uh, course of human life, not in our daily life or whatever else. There can be great writers in any genre and we don't have to actually keep them all kind of separated and segregated to preserve the purity of this one thing that was really kind of like like New York-based realism, which was so important for the a lot of the 20th century. New York-based realism, I, I like that. So you've spoken a lot about how society oftentimes underestimates the intelligence of young readers. And I think it's interesting that a lot of your books, despite being for teens, can be perceived as or are really challenging. So do you think that historical fiction or sci-fi and fantasy offer the ability to add that complexity and allow you to write in more challenging ways for young readers. I'm mainly thinking about the wanting to depict those emotional, the emotional realities of like their lives. When I want to, when I set out to write a book like that, it's because there's a part of me that is still that age and I want to write to that. But I do think that it is true that if you look at what especially people like teachers, librarians, writers, all these people who end up saying like, oh, this is going to be too complicated for a kid. You know, if we look at the stuff that we read as teens, we inevitably say like, well, I mean, I was reading like, whatever the example is, The Great Gatsby at age at age 12, and I loved it. But, you know, like, it's really too complicated a text for other 12-year-olds. Like, well, like, what kind of, like, uh, hubris is that? Of course, if we can understand it, then they right. can. And a lot of it is the cultural feeling around knowing things that is so complicated in this country right now. I mean, think about this. You know, we're having a conversation at a time of, like, censorship in a way that we haven't for decades. That has not been as this big an issue. Like counterfactual information, like people praising ignorance left and right, which is really, really frightening. Yes. And so I think that the other side of that is that we are emotionally and biologically capable of understanding incredibly complicated things at a really young age, but we happen to be, American culture has always had a kind of anti-intellectual bias to it that unfortunately, I think, has become really dangerous in our country. It's become a, a real, like, political danger. Science fiction and fantasy provide a sandbox for authors to explore deep topics in unbound ways, Additionally, they provide a safe way for writers to tell stories and commentary on more complex and dangerous topics. In an increasingly difficult and dark time for literature in America, these genres could see more utilization as the fight over censorship wages on. Well, I mean, if you look at the um, role that science fiction and fantasy play in countries with, like in dictatorships, Things like uh, the Strugatskys, who are um, a couple of brothers who wrote science fiction in, in Russia, or Xi um, Xinyu, who is a really now globally successful Chinese science fiction writer. 
And it's really, really interesting to see the way that they can say things that normally would get someone locked up. There's there's always uh, deniability that comes with the set of like unreal symbols that they're working through. One interesting thing that I've been looking into recently is um, there's a series a series on Netflix called um, The Untamed that is actually based on a, um, a set of Chinese novels. And the interesting thing about it is it is pretty much overtly a gay love story between these two sort of young wizard martial arts fighters. It has a big chunk of it that is essentially like if uh, if you had a kind of like a gay Harry Potter situation. They're at this school, this conference, blah, 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 they're falling in love. Now, the thing is that, of course, homosexuality is basically forbidden in China at this point. In fact, it's gotten even harsher over the last few years. And um, the author of this series, I have heard, who goes by a pseudonym, supposedly spent time even in jail because of this. But the series... What it does is it elides all of the moments that are like, that would be kissing. <laughs> so that it's like the plot doesn't work if they're not in love with each other. <laughs> and yet at the same time, it never says these two guys are in love with each other. It's just entirely clear. So anyway, like I think that that's a really, also a really interesting example of uh, how you can get around censorship by putting something in a magical world where no one's going to pay as much attention. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, right now we're going through our own censorship battles in America. What do you what do you think is the path forward from here? I think it's a tough one because the problem is that the path out of it is education. But at the same time, it is education that has the sort of the axe laid to the roots right now. And and that's why the like the axe is laid to the roots, because education is in fact the transformative institution in any nation. Like if we can convince people that uh, science makes sense, that the rest of the world exists with us in a kind of like a uh, an equilibrium and we have to understand that equilibrium and we have to know who are our actual opponents and who are people who just irritate us, <laughs> you know, right. um, all of that kind of thing. We have, to, we have to know about, we have to deeply know and understand other cultures if we're going to move forward in any uh, strategic way. All of that stuff is being thrown out the window in favor of a really kind of like coarse, simplistic mythology. And it's funny because you and I have been talking a lot about fantasy, and yet when it comes down to it, the American fantasies of power and of opposition and that kind of thing, those are some of the more dangerous ones. Those are the ones that are kind of shaping our world, certainly, and in, in many cases are shaping the lives of people all around the world. Yeah, that is very interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but that, that side of fantasy. Take one example. Like, um, I think it's so interesting that fantasy, YA fantasy novels, so frequently, without thinking about it, we replicate feudalism. You know, like, so the happy ending is that the peasant turns out to be lord or lady so-and-so or a princess of something or whatever, and then they take power and they are what the 18th century would have called an enlightened despot. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> Fantasy is, because it's based on sort of feudal models, whether in the East or in the West, tends to be really, really kind of like politically retrogressive. Like how do you, you know, the, the power of democracy, how do you start some kind of thing about the power of democracy if you're setting it in a world where um, it's full of uh, warlords right. and kings? 
We've talked a lot about the complexities in MT's work and how he uses fantasy to exaggerate ideas in order to challenge the real world. Often his style lends itself well to older readers, mostly falling in the young adult category. But in his new story, he's taking that style and applying it to a middle grade novel. Elf Dog and Owlhead is a story about a young boy, Clay, who encounters a magical dog that has escaped from a kingdom under the mountains. They have a magical and unexpected series of adventures in the woods near Clay's home. While researching the episode, I found pictures of MT's old dog, who sadly has passed away. I noticed that his dog looks strikingly similar to the one in the story. I was curious to learn if there was a connection. The way the book came about was actually that right before the pandemic, in around the end of 2019, my dog, who was about eight years old at that time, suddenly developed this terrible tumor. On my birthday, I was told, like, this dog probably has three or four days to live. You should actually set up an appointment for euthanasia by the end of the week. Oh, my God. And I just was like, okay, you know, I was so deeply, deeply sad about it. But at the same time, I still took her out for little walks. I mean, all she could do was around the yard and that kind of thing. And the miraculous thing was, over the next two months, she recovered in a way that, you know, was, it was like it was magical in a sense. By a month later, we were going on walks of five or six miles a day through the hills once again, um, and uh, she was gaining weight again. Wow. And the growth of the tumor appears to have stopped. As I said earlier, there, like, there are 100 miles of road, unpaved road in this town. We walked them all. Like That was my goal, was to like, walk all around the town. So the pandemic hit. And I live alone in this, you know, as I said, like little 18th century house up in the hills here. That dog, LaRue, was my one companion for that whole time. For four months, she was the only creature I saw. And we every day we would go for a walk. And it just filled me with such joy and such gratitude that I had the love of that creature. And also you walk through the woods and you realize that you now see things through the dog's eyes and you hear them through the dog's ears. The dog teaches you how to understand the world in a different way. I mean, earlier we were talking about um, fiction doing that. How does fiction show you the familiar things so they become unfamiliar? And being with an animal who you're totally synced with, that also shows you the miraculous in the world around you. Which she literally does in the book, you know? Yeah, right, exactly, right. <laughs> I just made it literal, exactly. Yeah, she shows him other worlds. In any place he's lived, whether it be a repurposed medieval monastery in Italy or a small haunted country house in the forest, M.T. has always found a sense of magic. For his reading challenge, Hometown Lore, he wants you to do the same. My reading challenge is to read a book that is about the history or the weird lore of your own area, your own town. It used to be, for example, when I was going on uh, book tours a lot, especially you do that in the fall and in the spring, especially. And in the fall, it would be like October, I'd be in some obscure part of the country, like talking to people and that kind of thing. And I would always, as a souvenir, buy a ghost book from that region. So like, you know, ghosts of central Michigan, that kind of thing. <laughs> and it was so fascinating because you read those and suddenly, like we're differentiated by our ghosts, 
Like different parts of the country have different ghosts. Like down in Louisiana, there are pirates, that kind of thing, you know, and then up in New England, there are Puritans. <laughs> so <laughs> what I think would be really uh, a great challenge would be for people to either something like one of these sort of ghost books or like books of kind of weird and, and crazy and interesting sites right around you, or a book of like, that interests you of some kind of like local history. Um, something so that you know the stories of the place that you live, so that you can feel like, oh, I live in a place that's like no other place. You can check out MT's challenge and all of our author reading challenges at thereadingculturepod.com. And today's Beanstack featured librarian is Ayana Miller, the media specialist at Young Middle School in Atlanta and the city's librarian of the year last year. She shared the impact she saw when she stepped way out of her comfort zone to meet her middle school students where they are. I started this last year because being in middle school, you, you have to get creative. And our whole theme here at the school is rebuilding the legacy. TikTok was kind of, uh, but I was like, I'm not, I don't need a TikTok. I don't want a TikTok. I'm not downloading TikTok. And our bills coach last year, she called me. She's like, Ms. Miller, let's do a TikTok video. She's like, grab a book and talk about it. And I was like, okay. And she did it. I grabbed the book, did a quick little spill about it. And it took off like wildfire. And so I ended up doing a TikTok book of the week. And then lo and behold, I had random people saying, hey, I saw you on TikTok. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so, and then I would highlight and tell them, you know, oh, that's the book of the week. They said, like, yeah, I saw it on TikTok. So that's what I did for, especially for my school in this environment. I had to find a way to meet them where they were. This has been The Reading Culture. You've been listening to our conversation with M.T. Anderson. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading An Ember in the Ashes by Sabah Tahir and Finding Me by Viola Davis. If you've enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And join us on social media at The Reading Culture Pod for some amazing giveaways. Be sure to check out the Children's Book Podcast with teacher and librarian Matthew Winner. It's a book podcast made for kids ages 6 to 12 that explores big ideas and the ways that stories can help us feel seen, understood, and valued. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for joining and keep reading.